Welcome to church this morning. Um, if I don't know you, my name is Glenn, uh, the lead pastor here, and just thrilled um, to be with you this morning. Hey, I encourage you to, to grab your message notes. Hopefully when you came in this morning, you received some notes, uh, because we are beginning a brand new series today that's going to take us all the way to Easter on the book of First Peter. So I think it's for eight weeks, we're going to be digging into really what is a great book, and I hope that by the end of those weeks, not only will you be encouraged, but you'll develop just a love for this incredible letter written to a group of people in a difficult time. In fact, kind of our theme for the, the morning, or not just for the morning, but for this series is living hope even in the midst of suffering, because that's kind of at the heart of what the book is about. But as we get going this morning, I got to tell you an old story that preachers love to tell. It actually uh, appeared in an, an old small town newspaper back when uh, there used to be something like that. And it was about this lady who was so excited that she got this new vacuum cleaner that had all of these different attachments to it, had one of those long hoses and everything. She was so excited about this that she uh, took it out and she's just vacuuming everything. She's vacuuming the drapes. She's vacuuming the, the windowsills, all those things. And then she looks in the corner and she sees the place where the cage for her little pet parakeet named Chippy is. She looks at this and she thinks, hey, I could clean this cage out just using the vacuum, right? So don't get ahead of me. I think you probably know where this is going. <laughs> so she says she's going to do and she takes the hose and she sticks it in there. She begins to kind of clean it out when all of a sudden her phone rings. She turns around to get the phone and you guessed it. She turns around, Chippy is gone. Nowhere to be seen, just a few feathers floating there in the air. So obviously she starts to panic. She tears into the vacuum cleaner, gets into the bag, and sure enough, she finds Chippy and he is alive, if you could believe it. So she grabs Chippy, takes Chippy, but he's all dirty now because he's been covered with all the stuff from inside the, the vacuum cleaner. So she grabs Chippy, runs into the, to the bathroom, turns both faucets on full blast, shoves Chippy under there, starts to scrub Chippy clean. Then finally Chippy's clean, but she takes it out and Chippy now is just obviously soaking wet, shivering and stuff like that. And so she thinks, what am I going to do? She does what any panicky bird owner would do. She grabs the blow dryer. Turns the blow dryer on hot, starts to pray down Chippy. Finally, at last, Chippy's dry. She puts him back in the cage, and Chippy uh, was sitting there when the reporter asked her, how is Chippy doing these days? And this is what she said. She said, he seems fine, but he doesn't sing much anymore. (laughs) And so my question for you this morning is, have you ever felt like Chippy? Have you ever felt like Chippy? Because I know that I have. Um, In fact, uh, one of the things, uh, kind of the big idea, not just for this morning's message, but kind of the big idea for this whole study of the book of 1 Peter is this, is sometimes life is going to suck you in and spit you out, but it doesn't have to steal your song. And so that's what we're going to talk about um, this morning. Because 1 Peter, as much as any book in the New Testament, except maybe the book of Revelation, is really written to a group of people that are suffering. They, they know what it means to face hard times. And as I was thinking about that, it's not just like kind of modern day first world hard times, right? Like my team lost the Super Bowl and, you know, have you seen the price of bacon, you know, which is difficult, but nothing like what they were facing um, in those days. They knew what it meant to face real persecution and hardship. In fact, right in the very opening line of the book, Peter tells us that he's addressing this letter to God's elect 
exiles that are scattered. And we're going to see that they're scattered around the Roman Empire. And you may say, well, why are God's peoples scattered? And the reason is, is that most of these people were originally from around Jerusalem or around the the place where Jesus was and disciples were. But under very fierce persecution, they had to pack up and leave their homeland. They had to run away. They had to flee. And they were scattered to all these different places around the Roman Empire. Places like uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Bithynia, places like that all around um, the empire. And yet here's the thing. They fled Jerusalem to get away from the persecution and they got to these places and it didn't necessarily get any better for them. You'll want to remember that this book was written. It's one of the earlier books in the New Testament. It was written around 62 AD. So uh, at 62 AD, first of all, that was not that far removed from the time of Jesus. But it's important to remember that the emperor of the Roman Empire at this time was a guy by the name of Nero. You've probably heard of Nero before. He was quite a tyrant. He's the one who burned the city of Rome, parts of it at least, and then blamed Christians for it. He was one of the people who began to force Christians into the the, um, amphitheaters and then uh, just killed them for sports into the Colosseum where they were just killed for sport by wild animals. This was a time when Christians began to be dipped in oil and lit on fire um, at this time. And so these people knew what it meant to suffer. In fact, and you're going to see this as we study First uh, Peter, the word suffering appears probably, I think it's 20 times in these five chapters. And it's six different words, six different Greek words that are translated as suffering. He uses all different words. It's kind of like Eskimos have, like, I think it's like 12 words for snow. They all kind of just mean a different thing. That's how Peter is with the word suffering. And yet in the midst of all of the suffering, this is the theme of the book. Hope. Hope, and specifically, what does it mean to have a living hope? Now, if you've lived a little bit, you know how important hope is. For one, maybe you've been around people that have, have lost their hope. And, and I've, I've definitely been around people that have, have run short on hope. And, and we know how difficult that is. It's difficult for them. It's difficult to, to be around folks like that. I actually believe when Jesus talks about the abundant life that he has for his followers, I think a big component of that is this idea of hope. In fact, study after study reveals these things. As you see, you know, experts talk about what hope means and you see that people that live with a high amount of hope in their life tend to live longer lives, tend to live happier and healthier lives. But not only that, they recover quickly, more quickly from, from injuries or sickness. People that have hope um, have a, a better handle on mental health issues. Um, people that live with hope tend to have stronger relationships. And I was thinking about it. It's almost as if we were made to be people of hope. This in our year of made for this. We are made to be people of hope. But hope, as you know, is not something you can just fake, right? You can't just say, all right, I'm at church. I'm putting on my my hope smile today. It's not something that you can muster up. It's not something that you can put on if you don't believe in it. It's not like you can just, you know, kind of find something and say, I hope. Like, I really hope the Sacramento Kings are going to make the playoffs. We all know that's not going to happen, right? That's just, it's... (laughs) It's a just false thing. But when we talk about hope here, I want to talk about Christian hope and kind of a definition that at least I'm working with this morning is Christian hope is based on a deeply held worldview that's rooted in a belief that God is good. 
So at the heart of this belief is that God is, is good. I may not understand everything about God, but I can understand that God is good. And he holds my life, and not just this life here on earth, but he holds my eternity in his hands. And when we get that, we can begin to be people that live with hope. All right, so let's jump into our passage. Open your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Peter um, chapter 1. You can also find it um, on your app there. Uh, it's also going to be up on the screens. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at the first kind of 9 to 12 verses here this morning. Um, and we're going to see reasons that Christian hope can carry me through anything, starting with we can be carried through anything because we have a hope that we are chosen. I can have hope because in Christ, I am chosen. And that's actually a key phrase to describe the Christian life. I am chosen. Let's look at these first two verses. So it begins like this. From Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So right away in the very two first two verses, it's supposed to just be kind of Peter's greeting, but it's packed with so much stuff, including about what it means to be chosen. And so to just kind of unpack that, I want to draw your attention to three phrases in that, those first couple verses that we just read, because all of them speak to the power of what it means to be one of God's chosen uh, people. And the first phrase is actually the opening greeting where Peter identifies himself. And he says, this is a letter from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And yet, if you know anything about Peter's life, you know that Peter is someone who knows desperately what it means to have hope because you were chosen by Jesus. Because we think about Peter, and here he is writing this, you know, important letter in the the New Testament. We think of him as the great apostle. We think of Peter as, you know, a leader in the church. But if you know Peter's story, he wasn't always even Peter. Right? His given name is what? His given name is, is Simon. He's Simon, son of, son of Jonah. And what is his profession? He's a fisherman. He's just minding his business, doing his thing, fishing on the Sea of Galilee with his brother Andrew. And Jesus comes along, and he finds him out of the crowd. And the word is Jesus particularizes him. He sees him in particular, and he says, I choose you. And he calls him out. And, and once Simon begins to follow Jesus, one of the things that happens is Jesus starts to call him with a new name. And that new name is not Simon, but it's Peter. And Peter, of course, means the rock or the foundation. And he becomes this great leader in the church. But you know what's fascinating is most of us look at the life of, of, of Simon. And the irony, most of us are really drawn to Simon because he's not some polished perfect religious guy. When you read about Simon, he's the guy who has a bit of a temper. He's the guy that puts his foot in his mouth, right? Simon is the one who makes mistakes and then he makes promises that he can't keep. And yet I love it because in all of Simon's weaknesses and in all of Simon's sins, Jesus just keeps seeing him and keeps calling him and keeps coming back to him and keeps saying, get up, Let's go again. I choose you. I chose you then and I chose you now and I continue to choose you. You see, Jesus saw something in Simon that Simon didn't even likely see in himself. And can I just tell you this morning, Jesus sees more in you 
Jesus sees more of you and more of me than we even see of ourselves. And you may say, well, what about all my weaknesses? What about all my sins? What about all the the failures? Jesus sees those too. And Jesus knows those too. And he particularizes you and me and he says, I choose you. Leave behind those things. Throw off that sin that entangles, but come and I choose you. I see more of you than you even see of yourself. So step into your identity as a child of God because you are chosen. So that's this first thing. Peter is someone who gets what it means to come up from nowhere and to have hope. But that's just one phrase that I wanted us to look at. The next phrase um, is not just who the letter comes from, but who the letter goes to. And specifically, he says this letter is written to God's elect exiles. This is a fascinating phrase. This is a key phrase. We're going to come back to time and time again what it means to be exiles, specifically scattered exiles. But before we even get to the word exile, especially in the Greek language, the word order is really significant. So not just the words, but the order that the words appear in is important. And so before Peter even identifies them as exiles, what does he call them first? He says they are God's elect exiles, God's elect exiles, which is a big deal. In other words, you may be facing hard times, but don't forget God sees you and God knows you and God chose you. Now, if you're an exile, that means that somewhere along the line, someone has rejected you. Someone has said, you don't belong here anymore. You're out of here. We don't want you around here. You are gone. You are an exile. They, they reject you. And again, a lot of us know the sting of rejection, right? We, we feel that sting and you've been rejected, maybe by a friend. You've been rejected by maybe a spouse, rejected by a child, rejected by a parent, maybe even rejected by a church. And so the deal is we feel that rejection and sometimes we let that begin to, to define us, right? And we say that's who we are and that, that rejected one. But Peter's words, let them sink into you because he says before you are anything else, before you are an exile, you are God's chosen. You see, just as I said, Jesus saw Peter and Andrew and he says, leave your nets and come and follow me. And just as he saw Matthew collecting taxes or just as he saw uh, Simon the zealot and he says, come and follow me. He says to each and every one of us, come, leave behind your things, come and follow me. You may be in exile, you may feel like you're out of it, you may feel like you're struggling, struggling, but you're in elect exile. You are a privileged refugee. You are a chosen wanderer. And we think those words don't go together, but those words should never come apart for the follower of Jesus. But we do need to talk about this concept of exile. What does it mean to be an exile? Again, this is a really key concept in the book of First Peter. And I uh, heard a, a message from a pastor by the name of J.D. Greer talking about this, and I thought it was so good. I wanted to share some of it with you. He talks about this idea that all Christians are essentially exiles in this world. The concept is we're temporarily isolated from our true country, our true home in God's kingdom. So we're taking up residence in another place. Now, when you're living in another country or you're in another country, there's at least three different ways that you can approach your time in that country. The first one, if you're in a foreign country, is you can see yourself as an immigrant. 
Now, an immigrant is someone who moves into a new country with the great hope that they're going to make it their permanent home, right? So they move there and they really want this new country to be the place that they belong. So they begin to do whatever they can to fit into this new land. And that's how a lot of Christians view their place in this world. You know, you might ultimately know that you're a citizen of, of heaven, but we treat this world that, like, this is the place that we really want to live. This is the place that we really identify with. And so we obsess with things like our status and our reputation here. And we get, care uh, deeply about what we do and, and don't have, and we stress and we bend our values to make our values like the values of the host culture, because the the goal of the immigrate is to assimilate and just to fit in. And that's one way that Christians approach their connection to the world that is not truly their home. A second option is to see this uh, world, and and you're just a tourist. A tourist is just the opposite of an immigrant, right? They don't want to live in this new country. They are just visiting. They know that they're just here for a short time, and so they don't form any real connections uh, to the place. They stay huddled in their groups. They speak their own language. They eat at their own places. They stay in Western hotels. They get upset when they can't find a Starbucks or a McDonald's, you know, to make them feel it at home. And if you're just a tourist and you're visiting a place and there's problems in the country, you know, there's political or social upheaval, it doesn't really affect you that that much because this is, you're just, you're just passing through. You have no real connection to the place. And this is the attitude that some Christians have towards this world. They stay separated. They never get involved. They feel no connection to the community around them and its problems. And this is wrong too. So you can approach this world like you're an immigrant trying to fit in or you're a tourist who's just pushing it away. Or Peter talks about this third option, which is this idea of being an exile. And an exile is someone who knows that their true home is somewhere else, right? This world is not our home. But for as long as God gives us, for an unidentified amount of time, we have to make our home in this new place. So we invest in this community. We form relationships. We learn the culture. We don't want to get too attached because all the while we're hoping and knowing that one day we're going to go back home. And so Christians that live as exiles are not as focused on just the things of the earth, right? They're, they're not focused on owning a ton of stuff because they know that this is not our, our final stop. They're, they're satisfied with just enough to get by because real treasure is not on this earth. Real treasure is still to come. And I think Peter's going to remind us time and time again that this is our mentality towards the world around us, especially in these days that we live. One of the reasons that we chose to study this book of of 1 Peter is because I think this message at this time in history is so important for, for Christians and especially Christians in the American church to see ourselves that this world is not our true home. So don't obsess about the experiences or, or what you do or don't have. Don't look for earthly solutions to problems and solutions. Don't let other people bother you or don't judge other people because of, of the way that they behave or they're different than you. They're going to be different than you. We're from a different kingdom. That's what you expect if you're an exile, right? We have a different set of values. We follow a different authority. Christians are going to seem strange to the world around them because this is not our final home. Now, I want to be super clear. This is not a reason to be weird or push people away. 
But what it is a reason is to say, where is my hope? Where am I putting my trust and where are my ultimate values? Because Peter identifies them very clearly as you are exiles, but you're God's exiles. Now the problem is if you've lived as an exile for any time or if you've lived and felt kind of like an outsider, I know that I've, I've had that plenty of times and it's, it's really difficult, right? You can start to feel alone. You can start to feel like, you know, I don't fit in. I, I, I don't belong. And so it's easy to get discouraged and feel forgotten. And that's why what Peter says next is so important because Peter writes to them, and he says, not only are you exiles, but notice he wants to remind them that God is still in control. In fact, it's just fascinating. Verse 2 of First Peter chapter 1, verse 2, you could easily spend a whole sermon on just this verse. Because in this little verse where he's encouraging you about your being chosen and connected to God is all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, you know the word Trinity doesn't actually appear in the Bible. And so you might say, well, why do Christians take such a, you know, why are we so attached to this concept of Trinity? One of the reasons is because of things we see like this in 1 Peter 1 verse 2, where we see all three members of the Trinity actively together, and in this case, actively together in connecting us to God, in choosing us, in saying, whatever you go through, I am there with you. So he says, God the Father foreknew you, and he chose you. God sees you and chose you. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, active in this world, sanctifies you, which means makes your life more pure, more holy, more loving, more like Christ. And we want to be obedient to Christ. Why? Because his sacrifice bought us forgiveness by the blood of Jesus Christ. And all of those things work together. And so I said you could easily spend a whole sermon just on that. But we should know uh, what we should see there is that all of God is active in choosing and keeping us and encouraging us even when times are tough. And so why can we have a living hope? Because we know that we're chosen. But that's not it. We can also have a living hope because uh, we have what, as Peter says, is a living hope. So we just sang that song, but this is where the scripture comes from. Look at, uh, look at verse 3 with me where it says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith you are shielded by God's power, shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed to you in the last time. And those verses, again, they're so great, just packed with so much stuff. But right in there, you, you see it speaks so profoundly as why these Christians, even though they're exiled, even though they're facing persecution, they're scattered, can still have hope. Because their hope was in the resurrected Christ. So again, you have to remember, this book was written around 62 AD. So this is just maybe 30 years after Jesus was, was, was crucified and Jesus was risen again. And so surely some of the people that were receiving this letter would have been even like Peter was. People who were there when it happened. People who saw that, that Jesus was put on trial falsely. And then he was tortured and he was beaten and he was put on a cross. And he was killed and then he was laid in the tomb. And then three days later, the tomb was empty. And so Peter writes to remind this about this. And so the people had an understanding that when they went through things like this, when they were falsely accused, when they were put on trial, when they were tortured and some even killed, 
they could have hope because they knew that their future was the same as Jesus. Their future was resurrection. He says, that's not just a little bit of hope. That's a living hope. And I want to just say for a minute here, this is why it's so important that we see that this is, Peter's not writing about a hypothetical resurrection here. People, Peter's not writing about like a metaphor, you know, something that, you know, maybe did or didn't happen, but it's, you know, something that we can just draw hope from. It teaches us about new life. If Peter was only writing about a metaphor, right, something that we could just draw a little hope from, his words would have no power, right? They would have, have no power. But instead, what we see is Peter writes to this little ragtag group of followers of Jesus scattered around the Roman Empire with no resources and picked on and persecuted, and they become the foundation for the, 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 the greatest movement in world history. All two billion Christians around the world today should thank God that the people of this time knew that Peter was writing about something that was a historic resurrection, and not just Peter, but all of the New Testament. It was based on a fact, and that led them to commit themselves to follow Christ no matter what, even when they faced uh, challenges. But it wasn't just a hope in the resurrection. It's a hope in an inheritance. You might want to jot that down. We have a living hope in an inheritance because the promise is eternal reward. Look at verses 4 and 5 there, and and just look at, Peter goes kind of on and on describing the certainty of the inheritance. And this is what he says. He says, you have an inheritance that's never going to perish, right? So it's not going to run out. It's never going to spoil. There's no expiration date. It's never going to fade away. Your inheritance isn't invested in, you know, some Bitcoin or some, you know, stock that may be great one day and gone the next. No, it's kept secure by God himself. Did you guys see this week on the news, there was that um, big cargo ship in the Mediterranean that was full of all these luxury cars. It was like a, a thousand Porsches and Bentleys and Audis. Did you guys see this and it caught on fire? Yes, it's terrible. All of these cars were burned. And I think of myself, some of these cars were worth well over $100,000. And I thought, oh my goodness, think of the hope that some of those people were putting in those cars that just burned up. Well, Peter says you have an inheritance that is never going to fade. There's nothing that will ever going to be able to burn that up. You know, hey, I had a, a fun opportunity um, this last week to play golf with some guys from the church. And um, one of the, the guys that I was playing with um, has had Parkinson's disease for uh, a few years now. And he's kind of early in the, the disease, but it's starting to show its effects. And this guy's doing a, an awesome job. He's fighting it. He's doing a, a, some really great things. But you can already see kind of the effects of this. And so as we were playing golf, I, I asked him, I said, hey, I said, Pat, you know, where's God in all of this? Because here's this guy who's always been healthy and, and strong, and he's not able to do all the things that he used to do. And I said, Pat, Pat where, where's God in all this? And you guys, without missing a beat, he said, Pastor, I thank God for this. I'm like, well, you know, you don't have to say that just because I'm the pastor. Why, what do you, why do you mean that? And he goes on, he starts telling me of the ways that it's drawn him closer to God and the way that it's caused him to trust God and to slow down in different ways and some of those things. And I think after a little bit, maybe he sensed that I was almost like feeling sorry for him. And he says to me this, he says, pastor, he says, I'm not going to have it forever. He said, there's no Parkinson's in heaven. And man, I just gasped and I thought, man, here is someone who's living with hope in this life, but his hope is in the future. And I was so inspired by that. 
Very next day, I actually went and visited another young man in our church, guy's 41 years old, and uh, dealing with some pretty advanced cancer, and again, he's doing some heroic treatment, some really cool um, scientific stuff that they're um, treating this with. But especially during COVID, it has been a tough run for him. He's been isolated. Um, he's been poked and prodded and, you know, all of these kind of things. It's been difficult on his family. And I asked him the same question, where's God in this? His answer was almost identical. He says, I- I'm thanking God because I'm drawing closer to him all the time. He says, this has brought me and my family closer to God than we've ever been in our whole life. I have a deeper understanding of God than I ever understood. And again, I kind of almost hung my head in shame because I thought, here I am thinking that I'm coming to encourage these poor guys that are suffering through this stuff. And I was the one who walked away encouraged. Why? Because these are people that were beginning to understand what it means to live with a living hope. You see, they have a deeply held worldview that God is good and that God holds not only this life in his hands, but God holds the next life in his hands. And when that happens, you guys, we can face anything. Whatever comes our way, we can face those things because we know that God holds our future. But it's not just our future. He holds our present as well. And so let me just wrap up with this third point, which is why can we have great hope? I can have great hope because I have God's greater purposes at work in my life. God's greater purposes at work in my life. We're up to verse six where it says this. In all this now you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Kind of like I was just talking about there. But these have come that the, proven to, to, that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold. And that's what these guys would have said. They said, what I'm gaining in this is greater than even gold uh, because it's a, a deeper faith. It perishes. It, the gold will perish even though it's refined by fire. But this kind of faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have seen him, or though you have not seen him, you love him. I love that. Because sometimes we think, I, I can't see God, I can't touch him. But Peter says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Man, I love those verses so much. Because I want to live with that kind of attitude. That attitude that says, no matter what I face, even when the trials come, even when I can't see God at work, right, and I feel like I'm alone or I feel like there's nothing happening, God is at work and God is good. It's like that song that we sing on occasion. Even though I can't see him, God is at work. He never stops. He never stops working. Well, hey, as we begin to wrap this up, I I was reminded of just an amazing example of this kind of hope. It's someone that that I was introduced to, um, or at least introduced to her work, a few years ago when I visited uh, Rwanda, and as you know, Rwanda went through a terrible time of genocide, and there's a woman by the name of Immaculi Libangiza is her name, Libangiza, and she tells her story in a gripping book called Left to Tell. And so in 1994, when the genocide came, um, she loved her country, um, but when the genocide came, right away her family was brutally murdered during a killing spree. It lasted three months. It claimed the lives of almost a million people from Rwanda. Um, Incredibly, she was one of the people who survived this slaughter. 
But for 91 days, 91 days, Eve, uh, uh, she and I think it was seven other women huddled silently together, crammed into a, a bathroom of a, a local pastor while hundreds of machete-wielding killers were on the lookout for them. And yet I want you to hear the words and her, uh, hear this story in her words and how she found God even in the midst of that. Let's take a little look. Left as weak and lightheaded, I could tell by my clothes that I have lost at least 40 pounds. Our skin was pale, our lips were cracked, and our gums were swollen and sore. To make matters worse, since we hadn't showered or changed clothes, we were plagued by vicious infestation of body lice. We could see them marching across our faces. <laughs> I can remember this. We may not have been a pretty sight, but I had never felt more beautiful. Hmm. 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 I can remember this. I swear. I'm like, I'm falling in love with God. It felt like I had all I wanted in life. That time was thanking God. When you feel every cell in your body is responding to God's love. I mean, you hear that kind of stuff and you think, how in the world? How in the world, through all that she could say, in the midst of it, I'm falling in love with God. How do you respond to the trials in your life? How do I respond? I'm not pointing the finger at anybody that I'm not pointing at myself. How do we respond to the trials in our life? Wouldn't it be great to say that I'm falling more in love with God? I remember this. I remember this, that his love became more real to me. She, of course, went on to become one of the strong voices for reconciliation and rebuilding of that nation because of what she understood about God's love. But as we close, can I just share something that's been on my heart? And I've, I've shared these kind of things before, but sometimes I think about that kind of stuff in light of what our world has gone through in the last two years, right? Because it's been tough. And no doubt it has been hard. There is a lot to be frustrated with in our world these days. But I'm not sure that the church at large could say that everything that we've gone through in the last two years has made us fall more in love with God. Has it? We've gone through hard times. And certainly there's pockets of places. But I don't think in general the world would look at the way the church has been these last couple years and said, you know what? They're falling more in love with God. They're more loving. They're more forgiving. They're more compassionate. And then I think about that same thing in the context of the book of 1 Peter. This is written to a group of chosen exiles scattered abroad by persecution. What if their response, what if the people of 1 Peter's response had kind of looked a little bit like how so many Christians have looked in these last couple years? What if instead of being driven to faith and hope, instead they became known for anger and bitterness Would we even be sitting here today if that's how the early church had responded to their persecution and their times of trial? Would Christianity just have died out because it was just one more religion that didn't work, right? Because their people were no different from anyone else. But praise God, that is not the case. They faced trial and even persecution, not just with faith, but with hope. And even though they were exiles, they were God's exiles. And the world saw it. 
And the world saw that they were different and they said, I want some of that. And can that be what Christians are known for again? Because here's the deal. This world may suck us up and spit us out, but we can never let it steal our song. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Again, for just your ancient scriptures that we come back to week after week and day after day. Lord, they are written to a different people at a different time and yet they are alive to us because they speak powerfully to the world that we live in as well. And so I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters. These are trying times that we are enduring. Help us, Lord, to understand how to face these things as the church at large, as the people here at First Baptist Church, and as individual followers of you. Let us be known in this community and in this world of people that reflect Jesus Christ, our living hope. Lord, would we be people that say we are falling more and more in love with God because of even the trials that you send us through. We love you. We thank you. We commit this to you. In Christ's name, amen.